Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the seventh episode of Shattered Gradients. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Kevin Meng, who's a high school student from Plano, Texas. And he he was also at Intel ISF, as several of our previous guests have been. And he was um, he was in the subject of robotics and intelligent machines, and where he won the Best of Category Award. And his his project is well. Why don't, why don't you why don't you give a bit of introduction to yourself and your project? Yeah, sure. Okay. Hello, everyone. My name is Kevin. I am a rising senior at Plano West Senior High School in Plano, Texas, just like 30 minutes north of Dallas, Texas. And um, first of all, thanks for having me. This is quite exciting. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. So a little bit about my project. Well, my project, of course, it was in robotics and intelligent machines, and it was about seeing through walls. So if you've seen like the old movies, the TV shows, the games, you know what we're talking about. Um, so let's get into a little bit of how this might work. So to attack this problem, we're going to take a look at radio frequency waves in a way that we haven't really seen them before. So traditionally, RF waves, they're our communication wave, right? Like Wi-Fi, cellular, Zigbee, uh, Bluetooth, whatever. But um, today we're going to look at them through the imaging wave perspective, the way that we send signals, we capture their reflections, and then we take a look at what these patterns look like so we can identify information of what they reflected off of. That's essentially the idea behind imaging, right? So Wi-Fi signals, um, the interesting properties that we're looking for are number one, they penetrate lots of objects. This is really the key here, their penetrative capability. And then second is that since humans are just such big bags of water, they reflect off of us as well. So of course then Wi-Fi signals in this kind of frequency range, they're going to be a nice target for us to use. So Wi-Fi signals, the, the thing is that even though they're, I mean, although they're very penetrative, that of course introduces some trade-offs and that's something that we'll have to be addressing with artificial intelligence. And so that's where the machine learning part comes in. So as for the collection of radio frequency signals, we're going to use an antenna array. It's actually just a commercially available radio. It's called the Wallabot developer made by an Israeli company and it's commercially available. So the idea is that you use this, this, this transceiver that can transmit and receive signals to send and receive Wi-Fi signals to capture the RF image of a person. But uh, if you actually take a look at some of these images, you can tell that they're not very easy to understand, especially because they're not complete. At certain frames, you'll see the guy missing his head. Some guy will be missing his limbs, etc. And this problem is so, caused. Yeah. Uh, you so if you don't mind, if I, if I interrupt. Quickly. Yeah, sure. Um, what does this just just so I have kind of more of an intuitive idea? What does this camera look like? I, I, does it pass the microwaves, or I, I believe they're microwaves? Does it pass uh, them through right. a lens? Yeah. Uh, great question. Um, they pass through antennas, and the interesting thing about RF antennas uh, that the one that I used was um, it's not very big. It's about the size of a big cell phone, like uh, like a Samsung Galaxy S10. <laughs> for context, mm -hmm. and it has 18 antennas. Now these antennas, they don't pass through a lens or anything. They're just sending Wi-Fi signals, they receive them. And because there is not just one receiver, but you have multiple placed in a specific configuration, ours is just like a grid with like, um, like rows and columns of a matrix, they're placed in that manner. And because of that, we're able to identify the spatial direction from which these signals that hit them, they came from. So that by that, we know the direction. Oh, okay. So that's how we get the directional information on the two axes, like for example, up and down, left and right. 
And then this radio also uses a technique called frequency modulated continuous wave or FMCW to measure the distance from which these reflectors are. Now, the reason why we need such a fancy name or such a fancy technology to do this is because normally when you try to measure the distance, you try to capture this 3D information, you need you need the time, right? Because you know that the wave travels at the speed of light and you know the time, then you know the distance. But the problem is that this time is like nano nanosecond range. So it's very difficult for us to measure. So we use this technique to be able to easily measure this. I won't explain it on the podcast, but um, it's, a, it's actually quite straightforward. But if you're interested, you can go on Google and look it up. But the idea is that uh, using FMCW, we can identify this um, this depth of reflectors, and that gives us our whole 3D context. That's our RF image, so to say. Okay, so so what what does this image look like? Can, can, can you? I mean, if you just look at it with your own eyeballs, can yeah. you can you see any kind of clear patterns? Sure. Or is it something you can only process with? A machine learning of some kind so you can definitely perceive some patterns it actually just looks like the outline of a person um, but what it actually is it is a map it is a, a kind of like a bitmap of reflection intensities from every voxel in space so for example your chest is very large it has a very large surface area so it reflects lots of signals back to the receiver and it shows up as a big red dot and then you also have your head, which reflects lots of signals that shows up as a big red dot. And then your maybe your arms and limbs, they don't reflect as much. So they show up as like maybe less intense, maybe orange, yellow, green dots. And so what you essentially get is the environment around the person, excluding all the furniture and stuff. The environment around the person is of low reflection intensity. We mark that with a blue gradient. And then when some things are reflecting back to the receiver, it's marked as red. So it's kind of like a heat map. It sort of looks like infrared, but it's also a little bit different because the waves are very different waves. Um, but mm. if you've ever seen like infrared heat maps, that's kind of what it looks like. Yeah, like um, like an image from an uh, from an FLIR camera. Or yeah, from a yeah from one of those yeah, heat cameras, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, these images that you receive, they are not very complete. They're actually very incomplete. Um, and this is for some reasons due to the radio frequency wave. Now in just some normal in a normal in a normal situation in an optical situation, you have visible light, invisible light has a very small wavelength, right? So when it hits a surface, it scatters, which means this energy goes out in many different directions. And that's why we can see things from a lot of different perspectives. But the problem with RF is that its wavelength is so long that a lot of objects, including people and furniture, etc., appear very smooth to it, which means when it hits it, it follows the law of reflection, and then it bounces off in some other direction, possibly, and it doesn't mm -hmm. come back to the receiver, so you can't see that object. It's, it's invisible to you. So here's where the machine learning part comes in. Consider the normal situation in which you just sample one frame of received signals and you try to identify the pose. This is not complete, so it's very difficult to do so. But the idea is that maybe if you allow some time to pass, the person might move or different signals might reflect in different ways and they come back to the receiver showing different parts of the body. Maybe if you accumulate not one, but maybe five frames, maybe you can see a more complete pose. So that's the idea behind the project to use a many to many system, kind of like sequence to sequence system in which to create an output pose, you consider not just the radio frequency image at that moment, but also maybe several in advance. So are you looking at 
predicting i mean are you looking at multiple frames of the same pose which may have different reflection patterns or are you looking more at a changing pose over time and then kind of aggregating the information uh that does not appear in a in a certain frame but may appear in the adjacent frames and getting a video output sort of thing yeah the latter that's exactly what we're doing it's um this person and we sample these frames at five hertz so five frames would be one second and so the idea is to not allow this person to move too much, but through movement, you can potentially capture a more diverse set of reflections than you would just with one frame. So what do the, the, the poses that you're predicting, what do those look like? Are you looking at joint angles, that kind of thing, like a, uh, a skeleton? Yeah, it's actually, a, yeah, it's like a skeleton. It is 15 key points on the human body. It's just the locations of those key points, like where the head is, where the shoulders are, where the elbows are, etc. Okay. Yeah, and then they're joined together by sticks to form a skeleton that's moving around. Yeah, so essentially the whole idea is to use the system to make these heat maps more understandable through accumulation of information so that we can see through walls instead of seeing like half of people through walls. Yeah, yeah. How did you how did you find this worked out using your many-to-many um, -many system as opposed to a, a single frame? Right. I actually found that um, when you when you work with single frame, of course, there's not enough information in just that one radio frequency frame, so you don't retrieve an actually complete pose. But when we but when we use this many to many system, of course, then we can we can accumulate more more information and therefore create a more complete pose. So there's actually this video that I uploaded online that I can probably link in some way to yeah. the podcast. Can stick it in the in the description. Yeah, yeah, and it, it'll give you a more more complete kind of picture of what, what's happening. But essentially, I tested it at my home and also through some different materials. And I found that like, for example, through a 15 centimeter thick drywall, which is just like about how thick my walls are, um, it could retrieve mm -hmm. a, a very complete pose. It's kind of like a video of this person walking behind walls. And the model is receiving input of radio frequency reflections that totally aren't complete and are kind of difficult to understand. All right. Thanks for the detailed explanation on on how this works. Is there anything else about the model or the way you train it um, that, that that's unique that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, sure. Uh, so as far as the model is going, the the key part is the many to many, right? The accumulation. So I haven't really talked about the other parts of the model, but they're quite standard. Uh, for, first of all, a residual convolutional neural network to extract features from these heat maps a region proposal network to identify the locations of these people within those heat maps. And then finally, the RNN to the, the yeah, the many-to-many -many is implemented as a recurrent neural network, which accumulates information over time to create a more complete pose. So now that we have that model established, we need to talk about training. Now, I wouldn't normally bring this up because training is just a part of every every model that you need to create. But the thing here is that there's no publicly available data set for this problem yet. And if I were to manually create one, I would have to label over 2 million, millions and millions of data points, which I really don't want to do. So to solve this problem, we, we introduced this, this uh, idea of cross-modal supervision, which has been studied before. But um, the idea behind cross-modal supervision is to ask a student teacher to learn from a a student model, a student AI model to learn from a teacher AI model. So here we actually have to um, introduce 
a separate model, and that is OpenPose. You've heard of that, right? The computer vision thing that can take in normal everyday color images and now put a pose, right? So that's going to actually... I'm not sure I've actually heard of that. Oh, really? But, uh... Okay. So uh, this has been like a really popular model for pose extraction from RGB images. Uh, it is able to take in a normal everyday color image and output a pose, right? So it's actually open... Specifically for humans? Yeah, specifically for humans. It's been open sourced and everything, and um, it's very accurate. So essentially, we treat that as the teacher model because the teacher already knows how to convert from color images to a pose. But you may be asking, wait, we're trying to convert from RF into pose. How does that help us? So the idea is that we now add a second device to help collect sensor information in conjunction with the RF antenna array. And this is just a webcam. So at every moment in time, we have two different descriptions of this person. Number one, their radio frequency footprint, and number two, their RGB footprint, or just an image of them. So we pass these two different data channels through different, through different paths. This, uh, this normal everyday color image passes through the teacher, and the teacher generates the ground truth because it's so the pose that it creates is so accurate and so complete oh. that, we, uh, yeah, yeah. that we treat it as the ground truth. Now, in a separate processing uh, stage that's happening at the same time, the radio frequency image passes through the student. It creates the prediction. Of course, the student could be very stupid at first. So we take the ground truth from the teacher and we, we minimize the distance through backprop. So that's the way by which mm -hmm. we train it. We introduce a second channel of information that is already easily processable by some open source components, namely OpenPose, this, this gate, this gate uh, analysis tool. And we use that to train the student. So that's that's the training process. And afterwards, we can simply do reconstruction. So so then from there, how did did you did you go up in front of the camera and try making many different poses to collect training data? Right, exactly. So we collect training data by turning both of these sensors on, both RF and both camera, so that they can collect information at the same time, right? Um, so I would be making random poses, maybe walking, sitting, jumping around. And the RF antenna array and the webcam would both be observing my movements and they would be collecting my data. And when we get to the training stage, we put it through this process of, so the RGB colors, images, they go through the teacher model. And then these RF images go through the student model. And then when they come out, they might be different. So we minimize the difference through backprop and that's how we train it. Mm hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. I I think it would be good if you don't mind to talk a little bit about you know what process did you did you go through in developing this project? Did I, I'm sure you didn't you know come up with the come up with the best possible model right away. So would you mind talking a little about the 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 stages that you went through? Was there anything you know particularly? interesting or surprising or funny that you came across um, on on the path to developing this? Yeah, I mean, you bring it up. Um, so I didn't actually work with a university mentor on this project. So um, I was left to myself and the internet. Um, and typically what I do with science fair projects is I come up with an idea and then I try to run it by some people who know a lot more than I do. And so I was browsing through MIT Tech Review. Have you, you've heard of this, this like magazine, right? Yeah. 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 So I was browsing through MIT Tech Review and I came upon this article that documented MIT's work in this field. It's actually called RF Pose. 
And it, it does a similar thing. It takes in normal everyday, um, sorry, not normal everyday. It takes in RF images and then outputs a pose. So I came up, I came across this and I thought, wow, this is, this is not really, this is not only really interesting, but also could be very useful in a lot of different situations. And so I thought, hey, I, I wanted to do something with this for my project. And when I, when I ran this by, initially, people like my dad or my friend's parents, they were like, are you crazy? <laughs> what are you, this is, there are so many different levels of <laughs> hoops that you have to jump through, right? Uh, the first of which is hardware. And I would later find out that hardware was a lot of the battle. It was quite frustrating to deal with uh, maybe sensors that don't give you enough detail, uh, sensors that don't work as fast as you need them to, et cetera. So this was the first hurdle to jump yeah. through. And then afterwards, it's just like, what are you supposed to do to improve upon the model? So initially, the I, initially I was told to just like, hey, you're, 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 you know, you're a high school student, just, just find something that makes a little bit more sense in terms <laughs> of feasibility. Uh, and I actually tried. I, I, looked, I looked around for other interesting projects. There are no doubt lots of interesting projects. But I, I would always come back to this and I would think, wow, wouldn't it be cool to do something like this? So eventually, I kind of just let my intuition take over, and I thought, "Hey, you know, you only live once. I don't know," <laughs> and and I thought that I wanted to pursue this. So that's when I started investigating. I started reading their papers. I started jumping through their references, almost like a recursive search, just like learning more about the individual components, yeah, and yeah. also, um, um, you know, just learning about everything that I needed to learn about, and then also getting in contact with those researchers and talking about their work. Um, and now as far as developing this model itself, um, I mean, yeah, I was a junior at the time that I developed this. The school year was very busy, but I always tried to find, it wasn't that I tried to find time. It was just that this project would be so interesting and so captivating that it would take away from my schoolwork. And that's what it ended up becoming. And yeah, this process. I've gone through the same process. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, you you get it. So um, it was um, it was it was fun, but it was also challenging. And looking back on it, like um, like the 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 division between you know actually doing the project and then going through the science fair cycle of like school, region, district, um, state, ISEF. It's just there's a lot of subjectivity. And I think that um, this attitude of continuous improvement, I mean, I remember at region, I didn't really do that well. I barely made it out of my region, actually, with this project. Really? Uh, I actually just, I found out that I was just completely confusing people with the way that I talked about it. Um, I was trying to convince them of this project without providing them with any additional information. I didn't have any really nice graphics to show them what was going on. I was just totally making their eyes glaze, glaze over so in both departments, I think this project was really interesting, not only in developing the project, but also communicating it. Because if you can't communicate your research, then why do you do it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know what you're saying. So that's interesting. Did you, um, I guess, if they if they didn't receive it well at your uh, regional fair, did you change anything about the project or was it strictly in the way you communicated it? Uh, actually, both. Yeah, both. So at Region, um, I had a simulator and all, but the problem I really faced there was I couldn't get the judges to get what I was talking about. And that was totally my fault. I wasn't presenting it in a way that was 
acceptable or or more so interpretable by those judges and i should have realized that not all of the robo judges are are machine learning people um so on that front presentation was just um being able to explain this in a way that made sense and was 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 accessible to different people of different backgrounds and on the on the other front on actually improving the work i actually between 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 region and ISF, I added a pretty big component, which was actually a prototype that could run this in real time. So normally, I mean, these computations, you've heard about the model, it sounds very expensive to run. And of course it is. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't run on, um, on mobile on mobile hardware. And I didn't think it made sense. For example, if you wanted to bring this into a field to apply it to, for example, search and rescue or military operations, it's not really feasible to lug around a GPU or something. So um, between region and ISF, I created a prototype that could run it in real time, but also you could just bring it around and it operated off of a Raspberry Pi. You hear that and you might think, what? I mean, how is it supposed to run that? And it was really simple. I just created a system in which the Raspberry Pi would collect data from the sensors and the data really isn't that uh, large in size. And it would send it over the internet. I set up some port forwarding on my local, on my network at home and um, it would just send the information all the way to my GPU server on the second story of my house. It would do the computations really? on there, and then it would send it back. You know, this was all done with really ratchet, like Python pro, uh, socket programming. But uh, oh, of course, trust like, me, I've done I've done communication software guaranteed a lot worse. Yes, very um, ratchet. Like for example, I had to write my classes because um, working with the socket. I mean. There are so many variables that, I mean, of course, like TCP, they handle this packet loss for you. But with Python, they're just, yeah, it's a mess. Yeah, no, I, I, I can see that for sure. I'm surprised you actually got that to work well. Um, how was the latency? So I, I measured it and essentially what I was doing, this was probably not optimal, but it worked. So I just went with it. I um I wrote several scripts that the number one you take the the data that you get, um the uh, radio frequency images they come in CSV files, so I took mm-hmm. the CSV files and I squashed them into strings and then I sent it over, uh, but first I encrypted those strings and then I sent it over the internet I received and then I decrypted, and then I restored them into the three D matrix or the the heat maps, um yeah the latency was actually not bad and I think. One of the reasons was that the data size wasn't that large. I was not sending really that many integers. The strings weren't even that large. And uh, this could run comfortably at 5 hertz. Now, sometimes there are like spikes of latency, of, of ping, and sometimes yes. there aren't. But, uh, and, I, and I expect this will be a problem, especially if you run this on like LTE networks, which aren't really known for their great ping. Um, but maybe 5G, you know, 5G is controversial, sure, but it does promise high connectivity speeds. Mm-hmm. So maybe we looked at that. We look at that in the future. What do you think? Uh, well, actually, what what kind of? Um, wait, first, if you don't mind, just a a quick tangent. Yeah. Um, your your communication thing sounds sounds actually pretty good, and I wish I had known how to do that a while back. I was working on a. Um, a self-driving car and the way that I transferred um, the data between my laptop, which was running the GPU code and the robot controller yeah. was by um, catting 
the number to a file over SSH and then constantly oh reading from that. On. So, 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 whenever, whenever you think you're doing some communication badly, just, just think of that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, if you want, <laughs> if you want the code, it's just a, uh, it's just a couple of classes. Um, it, uh, yeah, you yeah. just, yeah, I can send it over if you would. No, like. I, I figured out, uh, yeah. TCP communication. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I've been working on that in, in uh, freshman year. So, so I, that's something I'm not proud of, but concatenating you know, over like SSH. That. How was that latency? Could you drive it was, a car it, like it that? Was, it was pretty bad. It worked. I mean, the car was, was kind of slaloming from one side of the road to the other, but I got it to work and it was on a, it was, yeah. Sounds fun. <laughs> Well, that was bad. I can tell you some some more about that project later, but yeah. um, that's not the focus for now. But uh, my my other question was, how, uh, what kind of GPU were you using, and how how did this solution compare to using something like a Jetson? Or there's a there's a new Jetson that's the size of a Raspberry Pi. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, as compared, would you be able to get it to work on something like that? Yeah, great question. Um, so the GPU I used was the 1080 Ti, a very powerful GPU, okay. of course. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that it ran super quickly. Most of the latency between sending sending the heat maps and receiving back the pose was due to the internet. I, If I recall correctly, the pose was computed on an average of 0.02 seconds. That's not bad. So not bad with the GPU. I definitely should experiment with, um, for example, Jetsons. Or like different things, like for example, the I hear like Intel has created this Mobius compute stick or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's like the little HDMI stick. Yeah, so all of these a... things they can definitely be experimented with, and on a and a, on a 1080 Ti at 0.02 seconds, um, I think it's not terrible, but we're definitely going to have to do more experience if we want local processing on the field. Now, what what kind of framework are you using for this TensorFlow? Yeah, I wrote them in TensorFlow. I actually my my ResNet and the 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 region proposal network they were implemented pretty much directly with several slight modifications of the anchors and things off of Darknet mm-hmm. and YOLO. Oh, Darknet. Okay. YOLO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, yeah, that's not my area of expertise, but. Uh... But that's that's really neat. Are you more of uh, a computer vision guy? I mean, that is computer vision. My bad. But I, what what is your yeah, area? My um, well, kind of my my first major. Well, not my first, but but I I worked on a self driving car in the past, so that kind of combined computer vision, robotics, mm-hmm. um, and, and you know that's a large part of why I was I wanted to interview you because I was super interested in the stuff you're doing, and I I'm I'm hoping. I'm really hoping to go back to ISEF next year. And if I do, I'll definitely be in robo. Um, cool. That's, yeah. that's you know, the <laughs> machine learning and uh, robotics and vision is what I do. I'm working on reinforcement learning right now. Wow. Okay. Which, um, of course, includes vision as well. And um, yeah. yeah. So anyway, this is this is super neat. Yeah. If you're, um, there... sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Oh, I'm just, I was just going to say, um, in addition to this this working computer vision, I actually um I'm currently working at a local university on some NLP stuff. Is is that? Ooh, yeah, I'd uh, yeah for sure. I'd love to hear about that. Oh, okay, sure. So it's actually not that groundbreaking, but I think it's quite interesting. So we're looking at this problem of fake news, right, or just more formally misinformation on the internet, yeah, or yeah. In, in political <laughs> conversation, in political mm-hmm. discourse. 
So the 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 sta- the stages to attack a problem like this are are kind of twofold. Number one, you have to because we're humans, we like to talk a lot and we like to say a lot of useless stuff. The first stage is to out of everything someone says, identify what is a claim and what is an important claim. Like for example, if I wrote on my blog yesterday, I had pizza for for lunch. I mean, sure, it's a factual claim and it can be fact checked if you want, but it's not important. So mm-hmm. th- this problem of identifying what is important and what is factual is a big problem. So that's the first part. And then the second part is, of course, then matching these claims with known facts, like these databases like PolitiFact or whatever. Um, I mentioned these political situations because that's what the lab I'm working on. That's what they're focusing on. And we're applying these models to yeah to things like uh, these recent primary, I mean, these recent democratic debates, uh, for example, in the United States. So that's a super important problem, actually. In I'm not sure you probably haven't heard of it, but in um, in Canada they just announced this thing a few weeks ago called Leaders Prize. It's like a million, a one million dollar prize to a team that can best solve this problem of um, misinformation, presumably using some kind of machine learning. Yeah, so, so yeah. This, this of that. Yeah, I, I I definitely I've heard about that. I heard about this one million dollar prize for for this to solve this problem. But um, yeah. so our group, we actually focus on the former part, which is identifying checkworthy claims. Because for now, claim matching is extremely hard to do, especially when you don't even know which facts on the internet are true. Like, how are you supposed to match mm-hmm. them? Um, so for now, I'm working on identifying um, identifying these uh, these these claims that are factual and important. And the way by which we do that the baseline is not really that exciting. Um, have you have you ever heard of transformers in this NLP field? I have not. I'm sorry. I've used RNNs before. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So like transformers are the new thing for uh, for for text classification, for answer, for question answering, for language modeling. All of these tasks, it has surpassed RNNs um, for 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 these purposes. So that's the new thing, and we're looking at applying transformers to this to this problem, but with a twist. So first of all, we formulate this problem as a classification one. Just simply, given a sentence, please tell me whether it's number one, not a factual uh, claim, no one like totally not factual, or second, it is a factual claim but it is not important, or third, a claim that is both factual and important. So mm-hmm. we're looking at applying transformers to this problem, more specifically BERT. I mean, you might recall BERT from Sesame Street, but BERT is actually yeah. a, a new state-of-the-art transformer technique for these language modeling purposes. So <laughs> BERT is... Yeah, if you have any good resources on that stuff, uh, please do link it to me and I'll put it in the description. Yeah, sure, sure, definitely. So... A BERT, you give it a sentence and it outputs its classification. But we actually, there's a twist because when you, because of course we're formulating this as a supervised learning task, this is actually quite difficult to label in the first place because different people have different opinions on, you know, like is a claim factual or is a claim important? Because if, I mean, like for example, if if I ate pizza last, last yesterday afternoon, that may not be important to a political fact checker, but maybe it's important to my dietitian or whoever cares about that. So um, <laughs> these problems of data and and their labels has become a quite a quite of a big one. So we're looking at attacking that through two different manners. 
Number one, because we have so little data, because label data is very, very expensive, um, we're looking at applying some regularization techniques, namely adversarial training. Um, no, this is not the generative adversarial stuff that Goodfellow proposed that can create fakes uh, that you've heard about in the news, deep fakes. Yeah, yeah um, of course. But um, it's adversarial training in the manner that we we so for example, the the more intuitive explanation for this would be to just consider like like for example a a picture of of like a panda. This is a very common one. A picture of a panda you actually you add some noise like some very random looking noise that is imperceptible to humans but you add that to the image and then the model will completely misclassify it and what yeah where, where you run backdrop to just like make the minimum amount of changes exactly that you have to right flip. right so you use the fast gradient sign method so you find out which way to perturb this image to make the classifier look so dumb so what's interesting about this is that these perturbations these minor changes are so imperceptible they're so small that it's kind of striking that models will be able to completely misclassify things because of them so this problem of distributional smoothness like for example you have a picture you put it through a function f and the x becomes y but you put so now you perturb it like you say f of x plus some delta it creates a totally different y that's a big problem and it reflects that this distribution of the classifier is not smooth so that may possibly be a sign of overfitting. So we're trying to train this model to be resistant to these very small, almost imperceptible perturbations to regularize the model because we don't have so much data to generalize to. And these models, like these transformers, they have hundreds of millions of parameters. They're very prone to overfitting. So that's what we're looking at essentially to improve these models through adversarial training. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the summary. Yeah, yeah thank you. That's, that's really, really cool. I, um, <laughs> to... I, 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 okay, I'm probably gonna have to cut here. <laughs> I, I know that, that that was super cool. I, I'm not really sure I have a good question to ask at the moment. Yeah, um, well, uh, that's well, okay. Yes, how, how much longer do you have? Um, just a couple of minutes. I think we can start wrapping up. Okay, I, I'm just gonna ask, um, Okay, Kevin. So I this is this has been a fantastic interview. Uh, I could totally go on for another hour. This has been super interesting, but I, I know you have to go soon. So, if you don't mind, could you really quickly outline what are your what are your plans for the future? Where are you planning to go with you know this research with your previous research? Um, and you know what are your long term goals? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. This has really been uh, quite fun. It's my first podcast, so there's that. Um, as for the future, I really want to start deploying some of the work that I've done. Um, I've participated in science fairs for a really long time, ever since the first grade, actually. But as far as building projects with software goes, I started about in eighth grade. So, um, But the thing about school and the thing about high school and middle school is that you're so caught up in this, in this system of, of not only grades, but also other things to do that once you create these projects, you don't really have a lot of time to actually apply them. So that's what I've been started. I, I've actually gotten started with, uh, I've be, I'm beginning to start, start to deploy my things. Like for example, in eighth grade, I created a really simple application. It was a school bus application. It, a, um, it basically served as a, a, 
monitoring solution for the school bus service after I, I was inspired by some some scary articles that I read online about kids getting on the wrong bus or getting off at the wrong stop. So mm-hmm. these these projects that I built over the years, I think that they really have an like they have a good good shot at at, at maybe helping or solve some of the problems that were around me because that's how they were inspired. So that's one direction I'm going. I'm starting to talk with with schools, not only school districts, but also maybe local Sunday schools, Chinese schools, church schools, or whatever that they use bus systems to to apply this and perhaps uh, give parents and students a peace of mind. And this is really in addition to all of my other projects that I really haven't gotten a chance to deploy yet. You must be a very busy person. <laughs> well, it, I, uh... it's Plano. It's competitive. We have lots of in- <laughs> incredible people over here. Like you wouldn't believe how smart they are. Yeah, that's 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 really fantastic, um, and I, I wish you the best of luck with that. Yeah. Well. Uh, okay. Well. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. It's been it's been awesome. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Brendan. All right. Goodbye. All right. Goodbye.